a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm going to warn you right now that uh, there's a lot to cover today, so you better buckle up. Whether you are an experienced wrong thinker or kind of new to it, either way, I'm glad to have you. And there are wonderful sponsors who make this program possible. They include MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and LifesavingFood.com. So now that uh, there is, in fact, military action taking place in Ukraine, it's this is putting people into a very interesting position. Because on the one hand, you know, Putin, we're supposed to look at Putin and say, hey, this is the worst guy in the world. You know, he everybody sh- should unite and condemn him, you know, for what he's doing. And everybody should absolutely stand against him. And if you don't, if you even hesitate, such as I'm doing right now, <laughs> to to uh, fully throw in with uh, with what the the powers that be here in America are saying, well then I must be some kind of a Russian uh, asset, and I'm just you know promoting Russian misinformation or whatever the case may be. Basically, it's it's that Sith mentality. You're either with us or you're with Putin. Okay, I I'm not with Putin, at least not in the sense that uh, yeah this this is the guy who knows what's going on. Now I'm going to admit I have a certain respect for the man in the sense that. He is standing up for his country. He's the leader of a nation, and he is standing up for the interests of his nation. Seems to be a pretty no-nonsense guy, but I also remember this guy worked and thrived and rose to the very top in a system that was among the most evil governments on the face of the planet, talking about the Soviet Union. So there, there is that. However, you know... Judging by a person's behavior, I still would have to say that uh, Vladimir Putin is far less of a direct threat to my life, my liberty, my well-being than uh, my own political leaders. And the press that, that, uh, that plays, you know, simp for those political leaders. So I'm not about to throw my, my loyalty or my allegiance or even, you know, the, the responsibility for my worldview behind what the American media is saying. I can't. They've lied too many times, and, and the political class has lied too many times, and not just about Russia, but we're talking about virtually everything, specifically these last couple of years. So it puts us in a little bit of a conundrum, right? To where, you know, I, I'm not going to come out and say, oh, good, you know, Putin is invading Ukraine. But considering how the American press, and particularly the the current administration in D.C., has been pushing this narrative of, oh, Putin's going to attack, Putin's going to attack, I'm very confident that we are not getting a a comprehensive understanding of of what the the situation is in Ukraine. What's the beef between Russia and Ukraine? So this, this is where wrong think comes in very, very handy. And, and I want to play a little clip here for you. This is Joe Rogan interviewing, uh, I'm going to have to try his name real carefully here, Majid Nawaz. 
And, and if you haven't seen this, it's a long interview. It's a, it's a commitment to watch this. But I want you to hear what uh, Majid Nawaz has to say on relativist thinking, relativist thinking, and, and how it's increasingly dominating all of our public discourse. This is specifically about, uh, about COVID, but I want you to apply what he's saying to, to the whole narrative regarding Russia and how we're supposed to hate and fear them and, and see them as the enemy and fall in line and shut up behind Biden. Here's what he has to say. I'm not just talking about government. I'm also talking about people that have accepted a certain narrative and find that there's a lot of other people that are along with them in this same narrative. And they have these media pylons, like social media pylons, where they'll attack people and like you, call you an anti-vaxxer even though you've been vaccinated. The same thing with Eric Clapton. They were angry at Eric Clapton because he spoke openly about his very extreme vaccine side effects. Just speaking openly as a person who was vaccinated. And they called him a vile anti-vaxxer. Well, the question is why, right? And it's to shut debate down. Yes. Now, why would you want to shut debate down? There's, I think there's a deeper point here. And that is that We've just, we've just come out of a time where, for a long time, uh, moral and, let's just say relativism, whether it's moral or otherwise, relativism, this idea that truth is relative, this yeah. idea that, um, that it's all subjective, that everything is personal experience, that's being promoted. Yeah? There's no such thing as reality, whether it comes down to defining a man or woman. Uh, we spoke about this last time I was here with, with um, well, it was there in California, but with Sam as well. We spoke about the, the trans debate and man yes. and woman. Are whether it's defining a man and a woman, whether it's anything else, this idea that actually truth is all personally subjective. Right. When you, when you promote the idea that there's no such thing as truth, and when you shut down debate that is seeking truth, not that it claims truth, but is seeking it, when you shut that debate down, in aid of this idea that truth is relative, like those, for example, who now know the science that the uh, COVID vaccination doesn't stop or, regi- or, or doesn't stop infection or transmission and doesn't reduce it beyond twelve weeks. The booster shot, by the way, is eight weeks. But having known that, and they still insist on vaccine passports, it's it's no longer about seeking the truth for them. The truth is relative, and it serves a purpose. What happens when you do that? When there's no such thing as truth, you can't define reality. And when you can't define reality, the only thing that matters is power. You're a father. Now, we are child, children who can't reason. Like my, my kid's five. I mean, his reasoning abilities are great, but he's five, right? It's why you say to the child, because I said so, do it. It's good for you. Because they don't know how to reason yet. Yeah. And you try. And if something's too complex, you say, I'll explain another time. But right now you have to listen to your father. Don't do this. When you can't, when there's no such thing as truth, because everything's relative, the only thing that matters is power, because power gets to define reality. And this brings us to the hybrid war we're in right now. And that's why people that are in power, who are seeking a specific outcome from the world that we're in, want to shut debate down. What they're not interested in is seeking truth. What they're interested in is shutting that debate down because power steps into that void when reason no longer exists and gets to define reality for you from up above. And it's why it's so important in a dictatorship that the only thing you have left when all your power is taken from you is the truth. And if you read Orwell, 
if you look at 1984, it's why he spends so much time talking about how the power he was uh, writing about in that, in that fictional account is attempting to redefine reality, redefine the past, redefine the future. Because if, if you can't hold on to reality, you have no premise to scrutinize the government for whether they're telling you the truth or not. And it's really, it is a war in that sense, hybrid war. So information in that war becomes your most powerful weapon. Now, most people don't have the privilege of researching these debates, foreign policy, war on terror, COVID, whatever it is. People don't have the privilege because they're working nine to five, a minimum wage, and they're hungry and they're, and they're just busy trying to live and survive. What they normally do is they outsource their thinking on where the truth lies to trusted voices in the media. So it's why it becomes so important to manipulate the media so that those trusted voices that people are looking to are no longer giving them at least the best understanding of the truth they have, but are also peddling the agenda of power. When you're in a situation like that, it becomes difficult to define reality and therefore difficult to challenge government um, on whether or not they are uh, sticking to their promises because everything gets shifted, everything's relative. The Overton window keeps moving. Okay, there's, there's where we're going to stop, but can you believe how clearly he lays this out? And this is the battle that I, I, I try sometimes successfully and sometimes unsuccessfully to, to describe every time I sit down and open up this microphone. This is the battle for your mind and for your allegiance, but ultimately you are the one who has to make the choice as far as what is real, what is factual, and what isn't. And that's hard to know because you have information blasting at you 24-7. It's like a blizzard of information, and some of it's good, much of it is not. So where do you find those trusted voices? I mean, I've, I've worked pretty hard to, to be a trusted voice, but there is no way that I would pretend it. And I get everything right because I don't. But I do put in the effort and I do put in the diligence to try to find voices that are credible and that, uh, that can offer light rather than just, you know, sound and fury and smoke and thunder, you know, to, to get people riled up. When we come back, I'm going to delve into this article a little bit from, uh, from The Good Citizen about hyenas in the kitchen. And as this pertains to the uh, Ukraine conflict and uh, what's going on with them and Russia right now. It's not so much to persuade you to one side or the other, but just to get you to consider, is it possible that with all the stuff going on, our media is telling us a very limited version, one that only favors what those in power would want us to think? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just because this may be on your mind, I'm going to mention lifesavingfood.com. Here's the deal. Talk to Kendall yesterday. 45% off retail price is what he is offering my listeners right now on ReadyWise Food Storage. Click the link. You can browse his inventory, see what you like, see what you need for that matter. And by the way, this does include free shipping. So there you go. 45% off and free shipping. That's a pretty sweet deal. And I don't know. Times being a little uncertain, things being a little unstable, might be a good idea to, you know, bolster anything that you can do 
to to make yourself more self-reliant, including having a store of food with a 25-year shelf life to be there for a time of need. That's lifesavingfood.com. So I'm going to hit a couple of real quick excerpts from this article that I share in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Hyenas in the Kitchen. Cooking up enemies in conflict with lies and propaganda has never been so obvious. Now, this is from the substack, The Good Citizen. And the first thing they start out with is Putin swings back. Listening to Putin's recent speech that preceded the declaration to recognize the independent republics of Donetsk and Luhansk, it was difficult not to notice that something was incredibly off about his claims. They simply did not match what the Western corporate press, those dutiful stenographers for NATO power, have been reporting for years. Now, Putin gave the world a history lesson, pulled back the curtain on Western lies and hypocrisies, only some of them, because there are about a thousand curtains that need to be pulled back, and showed the world he's not going to be pushed around by the little hyenas of the European prairie any longer. In some Middle Eastern folklore, hyenas are referred to as symbols of treachery and stupidity. In other mythologies, they're known as vampire creatures who stalk and suck the blood of their prey. The phrase, laugh like a hyena, dates back centuries in English literature, including Shakespeare, and now embodies the number two position of the American executive branch. Oh, ouch. More on hyenas later. The good citizen says Putin's speech corrected the hyena's revisionist attempts of events in Ukraine the past eight years and revealed a man who, having watched his nation get pushed to its limits with broken promises and doormat NATO diplomacy, showed that he simply had enough. And good for him. In our new multipolar world of geopolitical chess, the bear and dragon are ascendant, and a realist foreign policy doesn't require the permission of any community, particularly a deceitful paper tiger like NATO or useless cabal of globalist order takers at the EU or the UN. Now, while there's little to celebrate with these new circumstances for global conflict, a convenient distraction from the last engineered global conflict, we uh, must recognize the chance for lasting peace and alliance between the West and Russia was denied by the U.S. every step of the way. All that remains is is brutal realism and flexing of power, the kind of realism rooted in self-interest to serve the people of a nation and defend it from encroaching hyenas. Now, the good citizen says 20 years of poking the bear has consequences, but hyenas don't know anything beyond their instincts, treachery, and stupidity. So given the role of the corporate press in engineering a pandemic and all the crimes that followed the past two years, it's astounding to watch people who know their lies and propaganda were constant and shameful, watch the same servants of power report on Russia and Putin, and believe that what they're saying is the truth. But how's that saying go? Fool me once and twice. They're happy to get fooled again and again. (laughs) Everything they've reported since the U.S.-backed coup in Ukraine in 2014, from the Dignity Revolution where neo-Nazi nationalists from western Ukraine were mobilized as shock troops to overthrow the Yanukovych government with U.S. aid, and then brutally attacked any Russian loyalists, burning for, loyalists rather, burning 40 alive in a building in Odessa to the annexation of Crimea, whose population prefers Russia, to the constant violations of the Minsk agreement by Ukrainian forces along the ceasefire lines, to claims of Ukrainian democracy, when it's at best a dysfunctional, corrupt oligarchy, has all been one stream of endless lies. And you add to that the domestic lies of Trump-Russia collusion set up through the CIA and FBI's attempted coups of a democratically elected president at home 
engineered by the opposition party while constantly vilifying anyone who asked any questions at all as Putin's puppet or a Russian sympathizer. And you have one of the biggest psychological operations ever unleashed on a Western population, not to mention grotesque acts of overt treason. Yet still, many who know that the media and government pandemic lies are terrifyingly real still believe the stories about Putin and Russia. But that's how logic works. If A was lying about everything regarding X, they're certainly telling the truth regarding Y and Z. I like the tweet that they they show here. Uh, CBS News. uh, Russia is a dictatorship because they have a state-run media that parrots the regime, uh, Putin regime propaganda. Not like America, where we have a totally free press. Yeah, right. Well, the good citizen says, look, if there was anything noble in war, the courage, bravery, facing one's mortality, the tactics and maneuvers of battles that required outsmarting one's enemy, Sun Tzu's art, all that is lost to advanced technology and a desire to manipulate public sentiment above all things. So they call them hybrid wars or asymmetric wars, psychological wars, information wars. And it's been proffered on this outfit the most evil of all, where victims are unsuspecting innocents, believing their governments have their best interest in mind. Silent wars, atrocities by states against their own citizens. And this is an interesting point. Today's wars aren't so much fought as they're curated like an exhibit at a museum. They're designed like a tapestry or some exotic dish on a cooking show. A little bit of false flag fava beans, Julian propaganda peppers, sliced projection potatoes, a splash of historical revisionism, radishes, piles of intel leaks, and you have the makings of war by design. Put it all into an oven where your enemy feels the burn and acts in the way you can claim was their true evil nature all along, and you have a nice dish of cooked-up conflict. When you control the global media machine who work for the head chefs designing this war dish, it is effortless to serve up this heaping load of detestable horse crap as reality. Yet millions will rush to obediently eat and regurgitate it. Now, the ability to engineer pseudo-realities is effortless through controlled information monopolies and compliant and passive populations who become conditioned to believe what they are told. Contrary to the myth of the Internet age, liberating information for the masses, the opposite has been happening. Information is suppressed. People are corralled like grazing animals into silos for control and manipulation where they are carefully fed prepared morsels to digest. Two-thirds of the top 100 news and information websites are controlled by corporations with connections to war chefs and intelligence agencies and groups like the Atlantic Council and Council on Foreign Relations. They all read from the exact same scripts that are prepared by our benevolent war designers. And these war designers are part of a class of elites who detest their own citizens, whom they view as lesser people, Hunger Games provincial rubes. Manipulating them through fear, lies, propaganda becomes a fun game. Socially engineering their reactions to events half a world away they couldn't even find on a map becomes the first front of battle, getting them to believe up is down, Russia is evil, Putin is a monster, and that the sudden issues in Ukraine are the cause of all the domestic problems they really care about, like inflation, high gas prices, supply chain issues, etc., requires constant psychological disinformation shelling. Now, there's more to this article, but I'm going to let you discover it on your own. Again, it's linked in the show notes. This is from the Substack, The Good Citizen. 
and it's titled Hyenas in the Kitchen. Think about what I was sharing with you, though, in the first segment of the show, that clip from uh, Joe Rogan's guest, um, Majid Nawaz. Sorry, I, I have to see the name in front of me before I can actually try to say it. There is no When there's no such thing as truth, you can't define reality. And when you can't define reality, the only thing that matters is power. So if you've had this hunch that, uh, yeah, there's a definite feel that uh, there's a war for what is reality? What am I supposed to believe? Your instincts haven't failed you. Now it's time to sack up and really and truly think as clearly and independently as you can. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. And, and once again, let me thank you for being a part of this audience. Look, I, I am nobody of any import whatsoever. I have no fancy degrees. I have no... Uh, I have no fame or fortune upon which I can rest that people should should nod at, at my thoughtful words. I am just a simple guy with a very deep desire to see liberty and justice prevail. And and I happen to have the ability to, to speak on such things. So I'm trying to use whatever gifts God gave me for, for purposes that will hopefully help the people around me see the world more clearly, see themselves more clearly. And think as clearly and independently as possible. And it's, I got to say, it's its a little bit gratifying, not because of any of my efforts, but because there are a lot of people doing exactly what I am doing, that I see more and more individuals finally catching on to the fact that government and mass media misled and manipulated us in the name of public health. And if there is one clear takeaway from, from this lesson of the last two years... It's that after COVID, we must embrace critical thinking again. This is an editorial from MassNews.com. It has some really great food for thought. Now that the pandemic is over, blind submission to authority must end. The editors say, "I'll never." For, the the editorial writer, rather, I don't know who who it is, so I, I don't. I give credit where credits due, but I don't know this this editorial writer's name. But the writer says, I'll never forget the most valuable lesson I learned during my first year at university, taught to me by a literature professor who had fled the USSR. All totalitarian regimes throughout history have shared one key trait. They control all knowledge. This is essential to their success. Because if you can't control what information the, the public can access, then you can't effectively control a population. If you ever if you ever give up your right to freedom of information, this professor would remind him, all of your freedom will be gone. You've lost everything. Now, the writer says it stuck with me. And over the four years, I had the opportunity to work alongside some great professors to expand that expand on that idea. They taught me how to maintain my freedom. First, learn to think. Freedom must be fought for and preserved in a variety of ways. But if you don't know how to think. You won't even recognize when your freedom is being taken away in the first place. According to my professor, for a people to be free and remain free, each person must recognize that he or she is an individual capable of independent thought and learn to think critically about all subjects. 
Any less leads to reciting memorized information which may or may not be true. Free countries allow citizens to access public information and share knowledge. All of this is crucial as it is essential for innovation, creativity, and advancement in all fields, including physics, philosophy, and chemistry. Society thrives when individuals are free to question existing systems and offer new ideas without fear of being persecuted. Without that freedom, we wouldn't have personal computers and startups. We wouldn't have advances in medicine or engineering. We would know nothing or we would be nothing more than submissive human capital to a tyrannical state much like North Korea, for example. In this country, independent media are banned while citizens live under a one-party, one-man rule. The country is in constant stagnation and it's dark. Now, the writer says America has taken freedom of expression and information for granted for years, but slowly it is slipping away. And this is all on our shoulders. For years, we've been sleepwalking at an ever-quickening pace into what I can only describe as a dumbing down. And it started with relying on Google to answer our questions. Then we let Netflix binge-watching become our public pastime. We no longer enjoy the traditional activity of people uh, of people looking at screens. Instead, we're glued to our phones and scrolling through apps mindlessly. We've become a nation of passive consumers, the perfect kind of public to manipulate with propaganda and mind control. Therefore, it shouldn't have surprised me that people seeking power used the moment to take control of their citizens. Now, slowly, we are learning more about the level of risk COVID vaccines present. This blind submission to authority during COVID was a major wake-up call for me, and I hope for many, that losing our right to question the mainstream narrative is a dangerous and slippery slope to the loss of all freedom. In the two years that have passed, people I used to consider progressive and who believed in free speech and an open web were being silenced and deplatformed. They began chanting mantras and propaganda slogans that instructed us to keep it simple, as if science was a Bible rather than what science actually is, which is a continual search for knowledge. There is no such thing as the science, and science is not meant to be followed, but studied. And although there, is some, there are some scientific conclusions that we've reached, such as the existence of gravity, no scientist would advocate dismissing any form of skepticism. In fact, if you can't question something, poke at it and look for alternatives, then it isn't science. If you can't question it without fear of being canceled or blacklisted by your own government, then it quite obviously isn't silence. It's a branch of authoritarianism. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that, w- that what becomes the consensus is wrong, but how we arrive there matters. COVID-19 mandates need to be viewed in context. There was once a time that our government used DDT on children. If you believed this dangerous, then you would have been considered a right-wing conspiracist. COVID-19 mandates were questioned. The science to end it. Similarly, we know that lockdowns during the pandemic had little or no effect on mortality, according to a study from Johns Hopkins University. But they did cause a great deal of social, societal, and economic harm, especially for our youth. It took people willing to challenge the narrative to end lockdowns and speak out. They had to be able to see the truth and not just accept it as it is. This is why we shouldn't panic over the COVID Delta Cron alert. <laughs> the author says, I'll never forget a Forbes article from 2020 that warned we must never do our own research. Oh, I remember this article. 
You should leave that to experts. These are the experts. Now, please understand, I don't mean to suggest that medical degrees and years of scientific research don't matter. Or that anyone can be a self-appointed doctor, but absolutely anybody has the right to conduct research, ask questions, and make decisions for themselves. Especially about their own bodies. And the best way to protect your body's private property is to open your mind and ask more questions. Now, we are still generally free in large parts of Western Europe, although we must fight for it. Our freedom should be used to allow us to grow as individuals by being critical, asking questions about ourselves and others, and participating in civil discourse. We should strive toward intellectual curiosity, not adherence to a dogma spouted by self-appointed experts. If we allow a few tech companies, CEOs of pharmaceutical companies, or politicians, or any party, of any party rather, to think for us, or to decide who is or isn't allowed to have a public opinion, or what type of information we're permitted to read, then the writer says, my college professor was right. We've lost everything. So if there's a theme to this, this hour of my program, it's, it's simply this. It is time to embrace critical thinking. And that doesn't mean to think the way that Brian tells you to or to believe everything that he shares with you on this program. But it means to cultivate the need for skepticism in our lives so that we don't get fooled again. For the final segment this hour, I'm going to share with you uh, a piece from Joaquin Book. And if you haven't subscribed to uh, to uh, to see where, where he's, uh, where, to see some of his writings. I, I share these very regularly on the program. You should probably check him out. He has a very solid, no-nonsense take on things, and, uh, and this, is, this is one of the best I've seen. But what you need to remember is this. People in power are afraid right now. Their influence is waning because their official words and reality are not lining up, and people are beginning to notice now, it's not like everybody's seeing it all at once. Clearly, there, there are differing degrees of comprehension. There are differing degrees of understanding about what has actually taken place and where the words of the people in power have departed from truth. But they recognize that the, the light is coming on in people's eyes. And if you watch somebody as they make that realization, you know, it's... It, it's pretty fascinating to see the look of, oh, oh, as they start to put the pieces together and, and their, their, the look on their face shifts from one of concern to anger. And I'm not saying that the best thing you can do right now is get angry, but you know how you feel when you, when you learn that you have been betrayed, that you, know, that you learn that someone has been lying to you or trying to deceive you. Yeah, it, it gets my ire up as well. But anger can't be the driving force behind why we, we research and why we, you know, do this, do our homework and study these things out. It's not enough to get angry. Not even enough to be angry at the right people. It's got to motivate us to dig deeper. Don't jump on the bandwagon till you've had a chance to sort things out for yourself and really vet some of those facts. Did this really happen? How much do I know about this that somebody didn't tell me? In other words, how much have I done uh, my own research on and learned about for myself? And if the answer is very little, then you know you've got some homework to do. We'll be back in just a moment. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm going to say a few kind words about SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. They're one of my sponsors. They are located in St. George, Utah, and they are the place to go if you or someone you know is into sewing or embroidery or long-arm quilting. And don't you dare snicker, guys. Don't you act. I'm so manly. I don't even think about those kind of things. Look, being able to, to sew and to create is a terrific skill. And if you have someone in your life who has that skill, you are a very fortunate individual indeed. I'm just pointing out that Sewing and Quilting Center sells uh, Cuddles fabric. They sell the most uh, handy uh, or handy quilter long arm quilting machines for a reason. They offer great competitive deals, and best of all, they service everything that they sell. They even service things that they don't sell. So if you have a machine that's on the fritz, take it to them. Teresa is uh, Teresa Alsop is the owner of uh, SewingandQuiltingCenter.com. She doesn't just know how to operate her machine; she's a certified technician. And they are the ones who can take care of you, start to finish, even giving classes to teach you how to better use your machine. If you're in St. George, Utah, stop by their store, say, hey, Brian was talking about you. Or click the link located in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. So I want to share this article with you from Joaquin Book. This was published on the Brownstone Institute's page. Skepticism is a new way of life. I think this is a really timely call to where we need to be going. He says the 2020-2022 pandemic split parties and ideologues separated friend from friend and family members from family members. Neighbors were dangerous, strangers even more so. The invisible enemy stalking our lands overturned every other concern in life. And the conflicts it spurred replaced bonds of affection with fear and hatred. More than ever, we need calm and level-headed thinkers, honest and willing to admit past errors, with eyes wide open for the corruption of industry or of government itself. In other words, we need as little politics as humanly possible. Joaquin Book says, as I wrote in a previous piece, we need people without a clear ideological position and who can thus appeal to audiences across the political spectrum. Two sane figures recently attempted the impossible to speak calmly to the other side, trying earnestly to explain what happened. Constantine Kiesen, the of the popular show Trigonometry, and Columbia sociology professor Musa Al-Garbi. Kiesen begins his monologue with, You're struggling to understand why some people are vaccine-hesitant. Let me help you. Now, he uses no study result, no appeal to the biological effect of the drug that's become the main symbol of the COVID conflict. No death rates or uh, R to the zero, no uh, projection of spread or what number of lives lockdowns may or may not have saved. Instead, for Kizan, for 13 spellbinding minutes, he walks us through the many good reasons that people had before and during COVID to distrust the elites in politics, business, and media. Now, if this is a question of distrusting the establishment, including the science, you must ask what the establishment did to no longer deserve that trust. Well, the tale begins two years ago with the Brexit vote and with the election, or years ago, rather, with the Brexit vote and the election of Donald Trump. Those events shocked the pompous leaders of the universities, the pollsters who confidently said it wouldn't happen, 
and the media pundits who so convincingly describe to us the madness of such prospects. For a brief moment after the unthinkable had happened, if you recall, there was an earnest desire for inclusivity, for inviting in the views that had gone overlooked in the other half of these countries. Outlets like the New York Times made an effort to portray conservative views and show the kinds of people who had long felt alienated and ostracized from civilized society. And as despicable and difficult as it was for their core audience to see, revealing perspectives and objections is better than silencing and hiding them. Well, the efforts didn't last long, and in 2019 and 2020, the monolithic thoughts that dominate these institutions willingly put their blinders on tighter and more aggressively than before. Kaysen's final minute is the most powerful thing in these disease-ridden past two years. Quote, The same people who told you Brexit would never happen, Trump would never win, and that when he did win, it was because of Russian collusion, then because of racism, that you must follow lockdown rules while they don't, while they don't, that masks don't work, and then that they do, that protests during lockdowns are a health intervention, that ransacking black communities in the name of fighting racism is mostly peaceful justice, that Jesse Smollett was the victim of a hate crime, that men are toxic, that there's an infinite number of genders, that COVID didn't come from a lab, and then that it probably did, that closing borders is racist, and then that it's the most important thing to do, that the Hunter Biden story is Russian disinformation, then that it's not, that they would not take Trump's vaccine, and then that you must take the vaccine, that Governor Cuomo is a great COVID leader, and then that he's a granny killer and a sex pest, that the number of COVID deaths is one thing and then another, that hospitals are filled with COVID patients, and then that many of them caught COVID in the hospital. These are the same people now telling you that vaccines are safe, you must take it, and if you don't, you will be a second-class citizen. Understand vaccine hesitancy now? End quote. Like Steve Carell's character says in the glorious scene from The Big Short, short everything that guy has touched. These guys have fooled us once too many times. We will not comply. Now, the long read for the British newspaper, The Guardian, by Musa Algarbi is even more important, partly because he speaks to his own side and partly because the piece runs in an outlet that's been heavily on the vaccine-cherishing train. Building bridges begins by showing those on your own side of, of the river and what the land looks like on its far side. And Algarbi perfectly captures the mind of the current skeptic. He lists, bullet point by bullet point, the clear and sensible reasons why anyone would refuse to follow along. To most of his audience, these vaccines are fantastic miracles, life-saving devices, their impact ending the pandemic in one fell swoop. Failure to comply with the directives of public health officials, write Algarby, writes Algarby, has thus seemed insane to the audience he, is, he addresses, are probably driven by some pathology or deficit. Here's a direct quote from him. Quote, debates turn around identifying the primary malfunction of those people. Are they ignorant, brainwashed, stupid? Selfish and apathetic, all of the above? Left off the menu is the possibility that hesitancy and noncompliance may actually be reasonable responses to how experts and other elites have conducted themselves, both before and during the pandemic. End quote. So Joaquin Book writes the vaccines were developed too fast without the long and rigorous testing regimes we usually apply to pharmaceuticals to ensure efficacy, correct dosage, target demographics, safety, and observation of long-term harm. Now, if those safeguards are optional and superfluous, then why do we have them in normal times? 
But both Biden and Harris vocally pushed against Trump's vaccine. But when the power of government passed into their hands, why, the tune was suddenly very different. And many people smelled a political rat. Speaking of rats, Dr. Fauci himself has engaged in noble lie after noble lie to get people to do what he says is crucial for them. If he lied about masks and then the Wuhan lab financing and then herd immunity targets, why should anyone believe that he hasn't lied about more things? That the advice his agency gives out is sound. That the science he says he represents is as all-encompassing and definitive as he and others deferring to him let on. Step by step, month by month, variant by variant, writes Al Garbi, the figures of vaccine efficacy kept dropping. Quote, the main benefit of vaccination has been revised down dramatically from outright preventing infections to reducing severe infections, even as people are encouraged to get more and more shots in order to achieve that effect. End quote. But the official revise, uh, advice rather remained intensified even as did the public's discourse. Somehow the anger against the unvaccinated strengthened. Now, this is not what we were promised when early in 2020, we stoically and proudly began sacrificing aspects of our personal lives for the public good. On top of that, Algarbi points to the billions that Big Pharma makes out of vaccines, a point that should weigh heavily on the Guardian's readership. And harm stemming from vaccines cannot be pursued in court as the U.S. government shielded the companies from liabilities in order to speed up the vaccine creation process. Add misleading statistics, former MSNBC hosts losing their minds, modeling predictions gone haywire, and it isn't hard to see why many people want to opt out. Something is rotten in the state of Denmark. And the only tangible act of dissent that most people have is refusing a needle in their arms. Now, there's more to this article, but look, this is the story that those skeptical of vaccines see. There's an official, there's a dissonance rather between the official words and reality that no amount of social ostracism or edicts from on high can eliminate. This is the story of a tribe of navel-gazing authoritarians imposing rules on the rest of us. Rules that don't make sense. Rules that are routinely flaunted by their proponents and in aggregate don't achieve the goals that they're said to achieve. Joaquin Book says there's no reason to puzzle about the loss of trust and the rise of grave skepticism about elite plans for our lives. You've heard me say before, keep that healthy sense of skepticism. Ask yourself, why do they want me to believe this? You should be asking that question when you hear me talking as well. Why would he want me to believe this? Because I want you to question those kinds of things. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program for people who are honest in heart, humble in spirit, and who are earnestly seeking the truth, even if that truth sometimes is painful or at the very least uncomfortable. I am your humble host, 
<laughs> just happy to be here and uh, glad that you would join me in uh, reveling in wrong thinking, a time where questioning the official narrative is deemed, uh, you know, just maybe not outright treasonous, but it's certainly a highly suspect act and uh, comes with a little bit of risk. All I can tell you is that it's worth it. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. So I thought we could start with uh, kind of an interesting observation that Gary M. Gallus made when writing for the American Institute for Economic Research. I don't know, I don't know if you have noticed this, but when people stand up against government overreach... It seems as though the media focuses only on the tone of voice that they use. That is assuming that uh, that it's people who are not uh, woke. Okay, so look at the the Canadian media, the way that they've reported on the freedom convoy of truckers there in Canada. And they very dutifully told the government line, well, these people, you know, they they, they, they apparently are racist or they're anti-vaxxers. They just don't agree. They're they're not not good, good people. But they're more concerned about the tone of voice, right? Even even the Ottawa police, you know, when their horses are being ridden through the crowd, trampling people down. The Ottawa police, well, yes, you know, we uh, did have some people try to trip the horses, but thankfully the horses weren't hurt. You'll all want to know that. They're all concerned about the tone of, of the person's voice who's protesting. But there's no focus whatsoever on the violation of the government's limits. And this is a really interesting position to be in because, look, I know that there are people who really tend to avoid conflict. I'm not a fan of it myself. But we ought to be able to hash out these differences civilly and openly, debate, discuss, you know, try to persuade each other. Rather than trying to silence people or put a gag on them because, well, I don't want to hear what they have to say. You know, when people want to do that, I, I don't assume that, uh, wow, what that person is saying must be really dangerous. My, my first reaction is, well, the person who wants to fit them with a gag must not have a whole lot of confidence in whatever it is that they're, they're trying to espouse. I want you to hear Gary Gallus' take on this. His article is titled, Uncivil Cause or Effect. And he says, incivility, in, in rather, if civility is passe in politics, how do we save democracy? Nicholas Goldberg, in the Los Angeles Times, joined a long parade of people calling for restoring more civility in government. However, in that op-ed, he also distorted Republican positions and blamed them for most of the problem. And such misrepresentation and finger-pointing bring his commitment to honesty as well as civility into question. Now, Gary Gallus says, while I agree with Goldberg that civility has declined still further from the standard George Washington set for it in recent years... Incivility isn't the core of the problem. In fact, it's often the response to the problem. He says, if I felt violations of my constitutional rights were being proposed or imposed, as frequently has been the case, often in the name of saving democracy, those violations of the highest law of the land, not the civility with which I object, are the core of the problem. In addition, there is further reason for being less civil in political debates than at other times, especially with regard to interrupting others' arguments. When the stakes involve vast differences in how the country will be ruled, it is more important to be clear and logical 
than in our day-to-day interactions, and interruptions can but need not be crucial to that end. So consider the structure of arguments, logic arguments, for instance. Premises lead to conclusions. A implies B, implies C, implies Z. So correctly structured, if the premises and logic are both true, the conclusion must follow. However, if only one important premise or step in an an argument is false, factually or logically, even if every succeeding step is valid, the conclusion need not be correct. And if there are multiple such missteps, there could be virtually no reliable connection between arguments and reality. So he says, consequently, if I note an important false premise or errant step in your argument, the pursuit of better real-world results suggests immediately focusing on where and how such premises or arguments depart from the truth. After all, we can come to some resolution with respect to the contested step. We can move on in our discussion and potentially even compromise or agree in the end. Without taking that step at that point, further discussion may yield a great deal of stomach acid, but very little fruit. Now, this is particularly important when the pivotal step involves the exact reverse of the truth, which can not only invalidate the conclusion, but actually confirm the opposite conclusion. That is, while statement A, if true, may imply Z, when A is false, it may exclude Z as a possibility. For example, protectionism can save some jobs and the income derived from them from superior competitors. However, protectionism does not create jobs and wealth for the economy as protectionists assert, or any of the consequences that would follow. Saving certain jobs eliminates others, including those in export industries, those facing higher input costs, and those whose jobs would have been created from the greater wealth unrestricted trade would produce. The shifting of resources from where people's circumstances and preferences would lead them voluntarily to where government favoritism dictates uh, destroy societal wealth rather than increasing it, as protectionists insist. Now he says, similarly, I have on several occasions heard the argument that higher minimum wages would be good for low-skill workers because more of them would seek jobs as a result. However, given that higher minimum wages will reduce how many worker hours employers hire, employees hire, rather, uh, increased job seeking will coincide with fewer jobs landed. And he says, I also must consider another consequence of waiting politely until the end of a disputed chain of reasoning. How well do any of us remember precisely what was said at step B when disagreement began, multiple steps and many minutes later? How well will my recollections match those of my opposite in debate? What was said and why we disagree is easily lost, which can generate even more uncivil bickering, distracting everyone from the validity of positions in question. And such problems are only worsened when, as today, one side often insists that certain words or phrases should not be taken at face value, but solely as dog whistles for hidden and nefarious meanings attributed to opponents. Now, the upshot is that even even though interruptions can be rude, because no one likes being sidetracked before reaching their intended conclusions, they may be more justifiable in political debate than in other circumstances. He says the benefits of effectively, more effectively revealing core policy disagreements exceed those in day-to-day conversations. So consequently, we may want to allow more leeway for rudeness when disputing over government policy. We do not want rudeness to become the issue deciding political choices, but some of what's felt to be rudeness in the eye of the beholder can contribute to more effective understanding and analysis. 
Now, of course, individuals must still decide for themselves when interruptions are sufficiently justified. There are many times in which they are far from that standard. For example, when one person just talks over another till they quit speaking, interruptions are unjustified. The same is true for interruptions whose purpose is to derail a line of thought, inject misrepresentations that move us further from the truth, or make ad hominem attacks. Electorally punishing such assaults on the possibility of advancing Americans' well-being by undermining the potential for increased clarity remains appropriate. Gary M. Gallus says there will always be vast differences of political opinion expressed in elections, and citizens will fight over the respective or the, rather the relevant facts. And that process can certainly produce rudeness. But, he says it would be far better to fight over such matters, even rudely, than to let real issues be hijacked into battles over whose rudeness most disqualifies them and their positions from consideration. I mean, I don't encourage people to be rude about stuff, but uh, I can also understand when someone is very passionate. And I've seen that passion. uh, Good heavens, I attended a a presentation one time where uh, someone started up a discussion over lunch about... uh, you know, the government was behind 9-11. And, you know, whether you believe that or not is not the issue. But the problem was it spiraled into a discussion which became an argument which just dang near became a fist fight right there in the middle of lunch in what was an otherwise very pleasant, you know, get-together of people celebrating freedom. So, some good food for thought here from Gary M. Gallas. Again, it's linked in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. If you'd like to subscribe to the show notes, click the subscribe link. Give me your email address. I'll send you a copy the moment that I publish them each day that I do this show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to say some uh, nice words about the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. First of all, if you are one of the thousands of people who are relocating to the Inner Mountain West, you've probably noticed it's a pretty hot real estate market. Finding a home is... uh, It's tricky because there just aren't that many homes on the market right now. And the ones that are on the market are, uh, it's pretty competitive. You know, people are, people are going for them, uh, ready to make cash offers. And the bottom line is when you find the home of your dreams, your financing needs to be squared away right now. And this is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in. If you are anywhere within the state of Utah, these are the folks you should be talking to from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the stability and the clout to get you the loan you need without delay. They're located at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George in Tower 1 and 2. You can call 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. I don't know if you have ever uttered the words, you know, there ought to be a law about this, but if you have, I have a message that I I think uh, you probably need to hear. Laws and legislation are not the same thing. 
One of the best explanations I heard about this uh, came from Paul Rosenberg, who explained that laws are typically based on tradition and what works. Now, this means that, uh, you know, you could go from village to village in, in, in the old days, and the laws may differ from village to village. But if you were to, to ask people about, well, why is this the law? They could give you a solid reason. It's because this is something that we've dealt with, and we found that this is what works. But there was a time-tested quality to laws. Legislation, on the other hand, is simply a politician's magical words on paper. Now, yes, sometimes they may coincide, but they are not interchangeable terms. In fact, Kent McManigal, writing for EverythingVoluntary.com, says legislation only creates more crime. Let me share this with you and see if, uh, see if this one strikes the nerve with you that, uh, that it did with me. Kent McManigal says legislation, which many people incorrectly call law, doesn't reduce crime. It can't. In fact, he says each new bit of legislation creates at least one more crime, often several more, and many more criminals as a result. You following? People who weren't criminals before are now for doing things that weren't crimes yesterday, but which now arbitrarily are declared to be crimes. Every time anything is criminalized, it creates new criminals. That's the only thing it does, really. And he says anyone who doesn't understand this correlation shouldn't be in a position of power over the lives of others. Murder doesn't need to be illegal for it to be a real crime. You would still have the right and obligation to defend against murderers. The only thing accomplished by making murder illegal is to allow government to punish it at your expense, which is, in his words, an unnecessary complication. Interesting. But he says to seek address to address crime with more legislation is actually going backward if your goal is to reduce crime. If the goal is to give the state more ways to punish people who don't do what politicians wish they'd do, well, then he says, I suppose it works. But it's not productive, though. If you want to fight crime, you need to stop pretending something can be a crime even though it has no specific individual victim by which he means someone whose life, liberty, or property has been harmed intentionally by someone else. Mutually consensual acts don't create a victim, and the state can't be a victim. So, for instance, he says, if there's such a thing as drug crime, it involves someone misrepresenting their product. Maybe the weight or the purity were not as advertised or it's stolen property. For that matter, he says, drug prohib- prohibition enforcement is the biggest drug crime since it attempts to punish mutually con- punish mutually consensual trade. Now, there are plenty of other examples which show again that government legislation is the source of most crime. So Kent McManigal says, if you're serious about reducing crime, Abolish or simply ignore all the legislation responsible for creating it. Leave the people alone to live as they see fit as long as they violate no one else's rights. Now that doesn't sound much like anarchy to me, or to uh, the law of the jungle, like the law of the jungle to me. He says, let people defend themselves and their property without the risk of being victimized afterward by the state's legislation enforcement and prosecution gangs. Crime is a problem. Making it a bigger problem than it naturally has to be is not smart, but is counterproductive and antisocial. And Kent McManigal says it's long past time to scale it back 
and start heading in the right direction for a change. Now, there are a couple of things we can point to here that would illustrate what he's talking about. You know, I I know this makes some people uncomfortable, but the war on drugs has actually increased crime simply by creating criminals where there were not criminals before. One of the most egregious examples of how it creates crime and creates more victims is uh, civil asset forfeiture, which ostensibly was proposed, well, you know, this is what we ought to do to take away the uh, ill-gotten gains of all those drug lords out there. We'll take away their fancy escalades, and we'll take away their jewelry and all their cash that they're carrying with them. Look, if you can show that this person gained those things through victimizing another person, by all means, give them due process, prove them guilty in a court of law, then there can be a taking of their property. But instead, what it has amounted to is people who are are carrying what what is arbitrarily considered a large sum of money, it could be a couple thousand dollars, it could be tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars. Law enforcement in many states have the leeway to simply say, based on, well, the fact you have a large amount of cash, we can seize it under civil asset forfeiture. And it's, I'm, I'm sorry to be so blunt here, but that is nothing but robbery. It's just being carried out by a costumed representative of the state. See, the thing with, at least with a regular robber, you could shoot back, you know, to, to try to protect yourself and your property. But when someone who's walking around under state authority comes and steals your stuff without giving you due process of law, yeah, it becomes a much bigger problem. So what do you do? Solve problems at the lowest level possible, for starters. And if you find yourself saying, well, there ought to be a law, I I think one of the big places where I've seen this really spiral into a a huge problem is code enforcement. And this is where neighbors get all up in each other's business, you know, about uh, your lawn is too long or your lawn is brown or you have a a non-running car parked there on your property. And I'm, I'm upset. It offends my eyes, my senses, and maybe it affects my property value. But rather than go over like a good neighbor and say, hey, I noticed the weeds are kind of getting out of control here. Is there any way I could help you? Could I send over some scouts with some weed eaters and rakes? Take care of this. No, they, they, they appeal to the authority of the municipality. Well, let's get code enforcement on this. And code enforcement, you know, sends out a courtesy notice, one of the most Orwellian Topics or one of the most Orwellian labels I've ever heard. This courtesy, this courtesy notice is sent to you as a reminder. It's it's a ticket, is what it is. You need to fix this problem, or and here's this is where the courtesy fades away quickly. We will begin enforcement, starting with fines and then moving up to charging you with uh, whatever it is, Class B or Class C misdemeanor. I don't remember the the classifications, but essentially, yeah, you will you will be hauled into court by people wearing the costume of the state with guns and with badges, you know, because someone didn't like the way your lawn looked. Does that sound like a just society? I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, if your neighbor's yard is an eyesore, that, you know, you you shouldn't be offended. But I'm saying turning to the force of the state as a solution seems like a really bad idea. And any time you say there ought to be a law, that's exactly what you're suggesting. Let's turn to the force of the state to bring about a solution. Maybe there's a better way to solve it that doesn't involve using coercion. Maybe we should try that first. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thanks for joining us. Thank you for entering the ranks of the wrong thinkers. I hope you find yourself in good company here. One thing I find that sets wrong wrong thinkers apart from the crowd is the willingness to venture into uncomfortable places, to actually explore topics that are right there on the fringe of, of, uh, you know, this is is almost uncomfortable to consider because it means that uh, you may have to you might have to set aside some of the things that you previously have believed, or you might uh, discover some of the things that we've been told don't exactly add up. I guess the big question that has to be in our minds is, is it worth it to know the truth? And I can only answer for myself. It's like, yeah, it is. I would rather hear uncomfortable truths and know where I stand than be fed, you know, plate after plate of very comfortable, delicious, fresh-from-the-oven lies that take me to a place of someone else's choosing. I got an interesting article I came across here uh, from Dan Gelernter. Gelernter, sorry. His name throws me for a, a loop, but this is such a great article. And he's talking about the divide between rural and urban centers and how this sparked the freedom convoys. And it all starts with the question of, where did our freedom go? The answer that Dan Galertner says is our freedom went to the cities where it's been on a bender ever since. Now, he says, in the 2000s when I was in high school, civil disobedience was lauded as something almost inherently noble. Our teachers encouraged us to think like Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King Jr. and grow up to be the kind of people who would disobey unjust laws. Now, the moral groundwork for this philosophy though our teachers were almost certainly ignorant of the fact, was the very American idea that Benjamin Franklin proposed as the motto for the United States. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. But our teachers, he says, came came at the problem from a different perspective. They were a remnant of the hippie movement of the 60s and 70s, a movement which, like the teachers themselves, never quite attained intellectual maturity. Their desire to challenge authority and the man was not based on a moral commitment to freedom, which Franklin would have recognized, but simply on a desire to be the authority themselves. A true liberal and power-hungry thug looks similar when they're in opposition. The French revolutionaries began patterning themselves explicitly after their American cousins. But whereas Washington rejected the proffered crown, Robespierre very much desired to be king as did many of the comrades that Robespierre killed and those who finally killed him. Fidel Castro in the jungle seemed like a Democrat to many. American taxpayers via the CIA supported his movement with a gift of $50,000. Then it turned out that Castro's goal was the same as Batista's, to be a dictator, and the CIA had to spend the next five decades trying to kill him. We learned from this experience by later sponsoring, and on a vastly larger scale, that great lover of democracy, the Mujahid Osama bin Laden. So should we be surprised when all the liberals in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States turn out to be fascists in disguise? Should we be surprised that what they truly desire is to exert unlimited power over the lives of others? And the answer is, of course not. 
The abuse of power, once power is attained, is practically universal. George Washington rejected absolute authority. Cincinnatus returned it to the Roman Senate after just 15 days. But in every single other case in history, a dictator remains a dictator until he or his dynasty is killed off. So we are now entering the post-Western democracy stage of history, and we're further along than we thought. No one was shocked when Germany or Austria locked people in their homes during COVID. Democracy in a European nation-state has always been a thin veneer. But it was shocking to read of people attempting to climb the fences at Australian COVID concentration camps and being hunted down by the police. It was shocking to see Canada's party line vote to prolong emergency powers so they could make protests illegal, imprison political enemies, and confiscate dissenters' property. By the way, last night, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau actually revoked that, uh, that emergency act. Interesting. Kind of makes you wonder, what, what writing did he see on the wall that, uh, that made him step forward and say, okay, we're done with that. We can take some of the more strict things away. I, personally, I believe uh, there were probably enough people in government who were saying, okay, this is putting us on a path to a collision that none of us wants to be in. Somebody take the wheel from this guy. And Trudeau, not wanting to be deposed or otherwise removed from power, did what he had to do to stay relevant. Back to the article. The big surprise isn't that the Western world is giving up its freedom. The surprise is that the freedom is already gone, and nobody knows exactly where or when it went. The voters in these countries spent decades not paying attention to each incremental expansion in government power and taxation, until they finally looked at the balance in their political bank accounts this week and discovered someone had run away with all the funds. Where did the freedom go? Well, it was swallowed by the cities. For at least the last 10 years in America, and maybe closer to 20, only the cities have had a say in state government. Consequently, only the cities wield power on a national level. Most people live in cities now, a danger which the Founding Fathers foresaw, but didn't know how to prevent. Jefferson wrote to Madison that when our governments get piled upon one another in large cities, as in Europe, they will become corrupt, as in Europe. Now, all of our protections against the abuse of political minorities' rights assumed a more or less even distribution of political sentiment across the nation. No one had a good answer to the problem of a tyranny of cities over the countryside. Yet it's a problem we should have been thinking about. The French Revolution was a tyranny of Paris over the Vendee. The Soviet Revolution was a tyranny of Moscow over the farmers in the Ukraine. And still, we never considered what to do with the tyranny of New York and Chicago and San Francisco over our own countryside. An hour north of Hartford, Connecticut, people are just as traditionally American as anyone you'll meet in South Carolina or Texas. But they have no say over the laws that govern them. The Canadian truckers' protest is really a proclamation by the, by the Canadian countryside. We don't have any control over our own lives, to which the cities respond, you're darn right, you don't. Again, this is from Dan Galerntner, Galerntner sorry, writing for AmericanGreatness.com. Where did our freedom go? Years ago, I had a guy on my show by the name of Franklin Sanders, and I'm talking years ago, probably... Holy cow, it's probably been uh, 27 years ago that I first interviewed this guy. And he had written a book, a novel by the name of Highland, H-E-I-L-A-N. 
Now, the the book was self-published. I mean, it was in paperback form and um, you know, I mean, some of the some of the pages looked type, you know, like they're typewritten and just you know printed up from from a, from a typewritten page. But the story that he told is something that has stuck with me, and especially this concept of the cities taking uh, control or trying to assert control over the countryside. And long story short, I don't want to spoil the story. It's it's really co- quite a fascinating story. It uh, it deals with America surprisingly in uh, in the early 2020s. So it was it was written back in I think either late 80s or early 90s, but it deals with America in our time in the aftermath of a failed civil war. There was an uprising, but it was put down and and then it settled into an uneasy peace where essentially the cities became the absolute epitome of lockdown control. Everybody has to have this invisible uh, tattoo that, uh, that denotes, you know, who they are. It's their, that's their ID. You can't work without it. You can't buy things without it. You know, everything is very, very strictly controlled in the cities. Getting in and out of the cities, you're having to pass machine gun nests and blockades and checkpoints, just like you were going through, you know, uh, going into East Germany or something like that. But in the countryside, the people, it's, that's called free, um, free states. The free states uh, are pretty much the rural areas, and their people are pretty much free to live without the blessings of the political class in the city. And this means that they're much more self-reliant. They coin their own currency. They, they, they grow their own crops. They, they innovate. And for the most part, they're very happy, but there is still this uneasy tension between we have two very different worlds existing side by side, and the question that always hangs over it is, can they continue to exist side by side, or is one going to get the notion that it has to control the other? You can probably guess which side is most focused on control. I don't even know if you can find a copy of this anymore. I don't think it's in print, but uh, used paperbacks may, may cost more than you're willing to pay. But it's one of the most fascinating stories, and it seems to, to be a pretty fair prediction of what we are facing right now where all this influence is, is being exerted by the cities, and the folks out in the country are recognizing that, hey, we have less and less freedom thanks to what's going on in the cities. I don't know if that kind of a separation can take place. But I know that uh, Franklin Sanders definitely was, uh, was looking along the right lines and putting two and two together pretty solidly. You can get your hands on a copy of Highland. It might just be worth your while. I think you'd find it interesting. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Final segment today, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about what's going on in Ukraine. And I, I'm not going to try to solve all the problems here, but what is happening in Ukraine is primarily between the Ukrainian government, a couple of breakaway republics, and uh, and Russia. So I'm, I'm having to wonder, why is this of such key interest to the U.S.? And I can only guess that this is because, you know, there's been talk for some time about we need to bring Ukraine into NATO. And and if, I know this is a hard thing to do, but if you put yourself in Russia's shoes, 
how would we feel if China were to uh, to enter into an alliance with Mexico? Maybe Canada would be closer because <laughs> there seem to be some, there's, you know, Trudeau's expressed some real interest in, you know, China's really a, kind of a neat thing. I mean, you can do whatever you need to in a dictatorship. But if they were to if they were to enter into an alliance where they were stationing troops or building bases all along our borders, do you think we'd have a little bit of heartburn about that? Do you think we'd be thinking that maybe that wasn't so cool? See, I grew up during the Cold War. I I grew up watching Red Dawn and my my family. We still jokingly call it the uh, historical training documentary because, man, that fear of uh, the the Soviets, the Russians, you know launching World War III, that was that was a very real thing. But as, as scary as that was, I've outgrown the idea that, you know, hey, we're the good guys and everybody else are the bad guys. I've, I'm sorry, but I've been paying attention for too long to what the U.S. government has done abroad. And it's, it, you know, if there's anybody who's out there doing expansionist, imperial kind of things, it's the U.S. government. And this doesn't mean, therefore, Russia is by default right in everything that they're doing. It just means that uh, if, you're, if you're leaning on our government as, as the good guys in white hats, not so. In fact, let me share with you a thought here from uh, Paul, or sorry, Lawrence M. Vance. And this is going to sting some people, but his, his article is called Ron Paul Was Right About Ukraine. I think this is some necessary perspective. The Cold War is over. The Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR or Soviet Union, is no more. The Berlin Wall has been dismantled. East and West Germany are united. Yugoslavia is now the independent republics of Bosnia and Herzegovina, Croatia, Macedonia, Montenegro, Serbia, and Slovenia. Czechoslovakia is now the Czech Republic and the Slovak Republic. The communist dictator of Romania was overthrown and executed along with his wife. The Warsaw Pact has been dissolved. Yet after listening to what is being said about Ukraine, it seems as though some Democratic and Republican politicians, pundits, some think tanks, want to return to the dark days before any of these things took place. Now he says the country of Ukraine was dominated by foreign powers for hundreds of years. After World War I, the eastern part of Ukraine was one of the constituent republics of the Soviet Union. All of Ukraine was united in 1939, only to remain under the control of the Soviet Union after World War II, behind the Iron Curtain. In 1954, the Soviet Union transferred Crimea to Ukraine, which regained its independence in 1991 after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Now, Crimea is a peninsula surrounded by the Black Sea to the south of Ukraine. It was here at Yalta that a conference was held during World War II between President Franklin D. Roosevelt of the U.S., Prime Minister Winston Churchill of Great Britain, and and General Secretary Joseph Stalin of the USSR. After being controlled by the Mongols and the Ottoman Empire for hundreds of years, Crimea was conquered by Russia in 1783 under Catherine the Great. The Crimean War, 1853-1856, was fought between Russia and an alliance consisting of Great Britain, France, and the Ottoman Empire. In 2014, Crimea, which is over 50% ethnic Russian, voted to secede from Ukraine, and Russia annexed it. To the chagrin of neoconservatives, former Republican member of Congress and presidential candidate Ron Paul observed, 
Why does the U.S. care which flag will be hoisted on a small piece of land thousands of miles away? Well, he was right. The government of the United States may care, but the people of the United States do not care in the least about what happens in this part of the world unless it affects them in some way. The American people don't lose any sleep over whether Ukraine is autonomous or dominated by Russia. The American people don't care about the territorial integrity of Ukraine any more than they care about the, in- the territorial integrity of Malawi. And most Americans could not locate either country on a map unless they were labeled with big black letters. Well, whether they know it or not, most Americans are Jeffersonians when it comes to foreign policy. They would prefer that the United States remain neutral, not intervene in the affairs of other countries, and not send its soldiers to fight except in defense of the United States. Lawrence Vance says Thomas Jefferson put it well, quote, Peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. We wish not to meddle with the internal affairs of any country, nor with the general affairs of Europe. I am for free commerce with all nations, political connection with none, and little or no diplomatic establishment. We ask for peace and justice from all nations, and we will remain uprightly neutral, in fact. End quote. Now, Lawrence M. Vance says, even if every bad thing that is said about uh, Putin, that's uh, rather being said about Russia and its intentions for Ukraine is true, and every good thing that is being said about Ukraine is also true, it still wouldn't change anything. Namely, the United States does not have a divine mission to police the world. Now, Ron Ron Paul was not only right about Ukraine in 2014, he's still right about it today. As Dr. Paul said recently, quote, The philosophy of non-interventionism is one very good piece of insurance protecting us from needless war. If you don't meddle in the affairs of foreign countries, there is less chance of being dragged into an unnecessary war. Ukraine is a great example of why non-interventionism is the only pro-America foreign policy. We are risking nuclear war with Russia over what? Ukraine's borders? Surely most Americans see how idiotic this is. This is not our fight. And by the way, non-interventionism is not the same as isolationism. As Dr. Paul said the last time he ran for president, quote, Under a Paul administration, the United States would trade freely with any nation that seeks to engage with us. American citizens would be encouraged to visit other countries and interact with other peoples rather than be told by their government that certain countries are off-limits to them. A Paul administration would see Americans engaged overseas like never before in business and cultural activities. End quote. Non-interventionism is practical, sane, moral, just, and right. It is the foreign policy of the Founding Fathers and of Ron Paul. Now, it's, it's a really interesting thing, and unfortunately I've had the opportunity to observe this too many times to think, oh, well, it's just a coincidence. But there's something that happens to people who are otherwise very stalwart defenders of freedom— Whenever the possibility of war is raised, I mean, boy, that that war flag goes up and you can just see their backbone stiffen, their heels click together, and suddenly they've got their war face on. And, and it's like they, they fall into line and they cease thinking clearly and independently. And I, I get it. Look, if you have someone who's in the armed forces, you obviously don't want to see your loved one unnecessarily put into harm's way. 
And so the attitude of, look, when the bullets are flying, the time to debate is over. It's time to rally behind our troops uh, for good or for bad until the job is done. I disagree with this. And it's not out of disrespect for those troops, but the people who are making the decisions to send them into harm's way need to be debated. They need to be refuted. And their positions need to be challenged. And it's for the very same reasons that Ron Paul outlined. Why does it matter to us which flag flies over Donetsk or Lugan? Why, why, do, why, do, why should we care? Clearly, I'm looking at, at the mainstream media's reporting, and it's like, well, Russia's just, you know, looking for a reason to aggress, and they're not going to stop there. They're going to take over everybody. But it seems to leave a few very inconvenient facts out of the equation. For instance, did Ukraine promise that they would hold elections and, and work to reconcile with those breakaway republics back in 2014? Did the U.S. participate in the, the coup that uh, toppled the existing power structure in 2014 to install someone who was more friendly to U.S. interests? And if you don't know the answers to these things, I'm going to challenge you. Go look them up. Go see. Because suddenly it starts to look a lot less like, wow, Russia's just really on a bender, and suddenly Putin's feeling his oats and going out there and invading people. I'm not celebrating war in any sense. I'm praying for those people who are in harm's way. I hope that things can be worked out. But to pretend that this is all just a result of Russian aggression, nope, not even close. There are a lot more facets to this story, and it's up to you and I to figure those things out before we make up our minds. This is The Brian Hyde Show.